Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Skaboom podcast, which is the audio companion to my book, Skaboom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. The goal of this podcast is to talk about Ska with an emphasis on American Ska history and the bands, musicians, and people who have helped to create and document a uniquely American version of Ska and Reggae that spans from the late 70s until today. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dave Kirchgesner, who is the lead singer of Mustard Plug. Mustard Plug began its career in 1991, playing basement shows in VFW halls in its hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, releasing the cassette Scopocalypse Now on its own dashiki clout label in 1992. But the band's proper debut, 1993's Big Daddy Multitude, was backed by the seminal ska label Moon Records. The CD turned Mustard Plug into road warriors as they began playing a multitude of gigs. Just as ska punk was moving into the mainstream, Mustard Plug sent evildoers beware to stores in 1997. Selling more than 90,000 copies, evildoers was a collaboration between the band and punk legends Bill Stevenson, formerly of Black Flag, and Stephen Egerton, both of whom play in All and the Descendants. The same year, Mustard Plug quietly offered its skanking, rollicking take on the Verve Pipes maudlin alt-rock hip The Freshman for a charity CD. The song generated such a buzz that it was met with radio play on major stations throughout the Midwest. With their newfound national distribution and exposure, the band climbed into their van and toured the United States, Europe, Japan, and South America. The band also made the rounds of two warp tours and participated in the Ska Against Racism tour. 2021 is the band's 30th anniversary. As of this podcast recording, they have played 1,900 shows, recorded eight albums, and sold hundreds of thousands of albums, becoming one of the most well-known and popular American Ska punk bands. I first became aware of the band through their incredibly catchy Ska punk cover of The Freshman, which is the intro music for this episode. When given an opportunity to capitalize on its growing popularity, the band decided not to do so, taking a different path than the ones taken by Save Ferris with Come On Eileen and Real Big Fish with Take On Me. I'll discuss this and more with Dave. Dave Kirchgesner, welcome to the Ska Boom Podcast. Hey, thanks, Mark. Do you remember your Ska lightning bolt moment? You know, I, I I I've thought about that. I don't feel like I really had a sky lightning bolt moment. You know, I it's it's sad, but um, yeah, I I had it was a bunch of bunch of different moments. I mean, I I first the first time I heard ska was on MTV, just like English beat and madness and stuff like that. I didn't really know what it was, but I really liked it. And then um, years later, I kind of heard it uh, floating around there, and I you know. Um, and I think it was mainly in, in college, you know, I, that, um, you know, there was a, eventually a, a local ska band called Pickle Brown Betty that was in uh, East Lansing that, that played. And uh, the Toasters started playing around uh, touring and they'd play East Lansing and Bim Scala Bim and Gangster Fun. 
So, you know, I wish I had that, that lightning bolt moment, but I, I, I think it was just bits and pieces. I started hearing more and more. I mean, I, I actually was, uh, listened to reggae first and there was, um, you know, reggae radio shows that I used to listen to in Grand Rapids. And, uh, you know, they, I think through that, you know, I got exposed to, um, you know, some, some traditional, like original Scott too. And just like Bob Marley compilations that would have simmer down on it, stuff like that. So it was a bunch of little tiny, I guess, instead of lightning bolts. So it wasn't a giant it, storm. It was just sort of like a, you know, multiple passing rainstorms. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How did you meet Colin and what has been the secret to maintaining a friendship and a band partnership with him over 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I first met Colin, um, you know, back in the 80s, we were uh, both going to punk punk shows and that sort of thing. And um, his girlfriend was sort of um, a mutual friend of mine. Um, my, my friends were friends with, you know, her. And, you know, so I, I kind of met him through his girlfriend. And... Um, you know, we just kept bumping into each other at ska shows. I remember seeing him at like, um, you know, SNFU was a Canadian punk band that played um, in uh, near us um, in the late 80s. I want to say like 87 maybe. And um, I remember seeing him there and there was like a, a punk rock teen dance night <laughs> that we really <laughs> went to every week. And that was super fun. I remember seeing him there and just kind of hanging out. Um, so I, I kind of was always aware of him and knew him kind of casually. And then, um, we started bumping into each other at ska shows and, um, we were pretty much then this like Grand Rapids didn't really have a ska scene at the time, but, um, he was in Kalamazoo and I was in East Lansing and, um, we'd bump into each other in like Detroit and Ann Arbor and stuff like that. Cause that's where most of the sh shows were coming through. And, um, we were kind of like the only dudes from Grand Rapids that would, would go to these things. And, um, you know, in, uh, this was like 1990 and I, I was graduating from college and so was he at the same time. And we were both moving back to Grand Rapids. So, you know, I was just like, Hey, we should start a ska band. And so, um, you know, that summer after we graduated, we, we did, um, you know, it, as far as like, you know, what's, what's kept it together. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it can be challenging. I mean, being a band, with someone like that, it's almost like a marriage, you know, it's, uh, I think, um, I mean, I, I kind of have a really, um, you know, unique relationship with them and we've spent so much time together more than like anyone except for our wives, you know, um, I've, <laughs> I've slept in the same bed with him, like probably a thousand times, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Motel six in it, right? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. That's we, we, we start out at motel six. We eventually moved up to super eight and then, uh, we've been, uh, you know, a little bit nicer since then. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, the key, I think to the longevity of it all is, um, you know, um, just our, we enjoy doing it. We sincerely love playing Scott, love playing live shows and, um, and touring and traveling the world. And, um, you know, it, it, it can be challenging sometimes to be in like a, a band with someone for that long. I mean, it's 30 years. I mean, I, I remember one time we played the Scottalites, right. And that was in Chicago. And this was years ago when it was, you know, basically the full band, um, you know, except for Don Drummond and it was in Chicago and, um, they had the Metro. There's like three different, um, dressing rooms are all right next to each other. 
Um, and there was just like, from their dressing room, the door was closed, but there was like this like plume of smoke, of herb smoke coming <laughs> underneath the den, <laughs> uh, underneath the door. And just like this constant old man bickering. <laughs> <laughs> just these old guys just bickering about, you know, stupid old man stuff. And it's like, you know, that's kind of what happens. I think we're right on the verge of being crotchety old men, but you know, you you just make it work and you know, you don't let your, your differences get too deep and um, you know, just like focus on the things that that you love. Yeah, no, I I can kind of relate, you know, I've known Roger Apollon, you know, uh, who, who I've been in a band with for 33 years. Right, right. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And um, it is like being married, you know, <laughs> without the benefits. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I would agree with you. I, I think f- for us, it, like you and Colin, I think it's about the music. Yeah. I mean, we, we clearly have a friendship that's based right. on other things, mutual respect and, you know, enjoying each other's company. And, right. and But I, I do think what brought us together and what's kept us together, and it sounds like it's what's kept you guys together, is the love of the music, the passion for, for playing music, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I, I, I want to make sure that this question I'm about to ask you is accurate. Cause I, I think I found this on, on, um, Wikipedia, oh, but you, you tell probably me. Probably not then. <laughs> but it Who says knows? that you and Colin saw the special beat together in 1991. Is that true? Yeah. I can't, I'm not sure about the, the, date it was before we started the band but that was one of those shows that um you know we we were in ann arbor so like neither of us knew we were going to be there and we bumped into each other and we were both again like the only dudes from grand rapids that were at that show um and that was a really phenomenal show too yeah i mean i i i write about um the special beat in my book there's a chapter on a tour that they did a little bit later um, where they went all the way across the U.S. with the Toasters and the Selector and the Scottalites. Mm-hmm. But I remember seeing them, my band Bigger Thomas opened for them in 1991 around the East Coast. Okay. And I remember for a lot of us um, who had never seen the specials or the English beat, it was like uh, mesmerizing right. to finally see Ranking Roger and Horace yeah. Panter and Neville Staple and Roddy Radiation. Did you guys have that same sort of experience of just sort of standing there dumbstruck by seeing them perform live? Yeah, it was amazing. And what, what kind of made the night even more special for me is um, I had a fanzine at the time. And so um, I don't know how I finagled it, but I finagled um, an interview with Ranking Roger like before the set. So I was like, it was like me and my girlfriend were hanging out backstage with, with Roger and I was interviewing him. And it was just like, I, mean, I was, you know, I, I tried to make it as intelligent as possible, but, um, you know, I was just kind of a kid then and he was so gracious, you know, he was like just so kind. And, um, so to like, not only like first get to like kind of hang out with your idol and, and that can be a very scary thing. There's been situations where I've kind of met people I idolized and realized that they were not, wonderful people. But in that situation, um, it was just, he was such a, a warm hearted person. Then, then to go watch the band perform, you know, a band of that legacy and that, that caliber was just phenomenal. It's just like, wow, this, this has to happen, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, yeah. I had a similar experience. Actually, Bigger Thomas started essentially because Roger 
and I went to see the special beat at this uh, iconic punk rock club near where we lived called City Gardens in right, New yeah. Jersey. And um, we had a very similar experience. We walked in and he was playing pinball by himself. <laughs> and and I said, that's ranking Roger over there. And Roger's like, no, it isn't. I'm like, yeah, it is. And we went over to talk to him and he couldn't have been nicer. Right. Warm and gracious and yeah. very encouraging. We had just decided to start a band and yep. he was like, you know, you should do it. Definitely do it. Good luck. Um, but did, did you and Colin stand like next to each other at this show? Like, I'm sort of curious because it basically said that in, that seeing this show inspired you to start your band. So like, did you guys walk out of that show and say, holy shit, that was crazy. We got to do this too. Like what, what was the experience? You know, I, I, I don't think we were like standing next to each other. I mean, at that point we knew each other, but not just, he was kind of like the other dude from the scene that was into ska. And it was kind of like, um, I mean, it was, it was awesome. And, and at that point it had really gotten into to ska a lot. And, um, you know, um, I, you know, starting the ska band, it wasn't like anything that we, you know, were taking that seriously at first. It's just that there was just this core hand handful of, of ska fans. And he, he and I were kind of like the prominent ones, but we also knew some other people from the ska scene that we were able to pull together in Grand Rapids. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, Wikipedia, our, 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 honestly, our Wikipedia page is a mess and there's stuff that is emphasized that probably shouldn't be and lots of stuff that's omitted. Um, I mean, that was a really great show but also, um, there were a bunch of great shows. I mean, the toasters were phenomenal then. I, I got to see the New York Citizens at that time once in, in, in New York City. Um, you know, and Gangster Fun was just mind-blowing. You know, there were a, a bunch of phenomenal shows. Like, so it, it's kind of like, you know, there wasn't really, a, again, a lightning bolt moment, even in that respect from a show. There was, but there were a bunch of really phenomenal shocks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I get it. So you were seeing sort of the cream of the crop of um, not only, you know, British two-tone ska, but like American ska bands. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, absolutely. and so, so was it the, the um, accumulation of all those experiences that led you two to sort of say, we should do this too? Yeah. Yeah. And um, that, you know, it was, a, a lot of it was, um, you know, moving back to Grand Rapids, um, you know, I, I, East Lansing and Kalamazoo, they at least would have ska bands that come through, you know, because there were like these college bars that like the Toasters and Bim Ska Bim would come through. And we're closer to Detroit, which had actually a really kind of cool little burgeoning ska scene. And even Kalamazoo had a ska band and Ann Arbor had a ska band. But Grand Rapids had nothing. So um, part of it was we really approached it from a fan perspective. And, you know, the only way to create a ska scene in Grand Rapids seemed like was to start a ska band. And then um, I was also kind of promoting shows at the time. Um, so, it, it, I, you know, I, I brought in like bands like Let's Go Bowling and King Apparatus and Skanking Pickle and stuff like that. And we would just open for them. And so, it, it, you know, that way we also had a local ska band to open for them. So it was, it's, I mean, Mustard Plug, we didn't really take it that seriously at all for the, for, for quite a while. I mean, I, it was just kind of like a hobby thing. I had other things I was kind of more focused on, but it was just kind of like, let's get our friends together and do a ska band. And that way, you know, we can bring, it'll make it easier to bring ska bands to Grand Rapids. <laughs> and little did you know that 30 years later, you would still be doing this, right? Yeah. 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 It's pretty crazy. 
Um, and, you know, it was all like, it was more, it had to do with like just, you know, trying to create a ska scene and bring bands in. And the, the downside of that is like, because we didn't take each other, take it that seriously. And basically any friend that wanted to be in the band could be in the band. And we were pretty sloppy and, and really um, just there to just a fun thing. It wasn't, we weren't that, good at all when we started and but you were opening for these big bands so um i'm sure like bands from like like you know like i said like king apparatus came through and let's go bowling and skating pickle and they must have just were like these guys suck you know (laughs) (laughs) i didn't think that hurt us for a while i think they were like kind of like mustard plug you know until you know later on we eventually got marginally competent at least so but at first i think that first impression must have been brutal you know so in the beginning did 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 you all know how to play your instruments or had you ever sung before or was this just like hey i'm going to be the singer hey colin you be the guitar player and so on yeah it was pretty much like that um i had never sang before and colin i don't think he had really ever been in a guitar based band at least nothing that played out he was like in a sort of in, I think he was in like an industrial band for a couple months and um, like no one had really any serious experience at all. Um, I mean, our bass player, Anthony had been in a couple like kind of just local punk bands, but nothing that ever played outside of West Michigan. And our drummer, Mike, he, uh, he basically like, I think he bought a, a really cheap kit and just started playing, you know, he had never had any experience in a band either. And, and we just pulled horn guys from wherever, you know, a lot of the guys that were our initial horn guys were like punk rock dudes that had played horn in their high school band and hadn't played in four years, but still had this, had this dusty horn in their closet somewhere like that, you know? Yeah. Have, have horn. You're in the band pretty much, right? Yeah. Oh, you play trombone? Anything, you know, <laughs> we had a harmonica player at first. We just, he was a friend of ours. We he didn't know what else to do. And I, you know, at first I was just like, you know, if I, I, I didn't, I couldn't, play an instrument so i'm like i guess i'm singing and i was just like you know if, if you guys want to replace me in a couple months or whatever that's fine you know <laughs> but um yeah it just it was real real rough but i mean our hearts were in the right place of course so, yeah. yeah i mean the diy aspect of it is is what's so crazy great about it oh absolutely you know? and, and we totally came from like a very diy you know punk rock you know, eighties hardcore scene where it's like, you know, it didn't really matter, you know, if you, you didn't have to be a virtuoso because you're not going to be doing a 10 minute guitar right. solo. You know? Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a little bit before you guys started to play there, there were other bands in Michigan. So I, I wanted to ask yeah. you, um, about whether you knew or had seen those bands. So I know there was a band from Ann Arbor called SLK. Yeah. Um, and of course there was gangster fun from Detroit. Mm-hmm. Had you seen these bands and, and how important or, or influential were they on you in terms of starting mustard plug? Sure. Well, SLK wasn't really on our radar at all. They had, they kind of were in the, the two tone era and they, they really broke up before, um, you know, we had really started playing shows. I, I have some, I have a, a couple buddies in Grand Rapids that were like in the kind of alternative music scene in the early eighties. And, and they had seen SLK and they were kind of fans and they end up, you know, continue on being Scott fans. But, um, I, you know, they were really before my time and it wasn't till years later, you know, I heard of them and I, you know, dig around in record shops and find the records and that sort of thing.
ain't no bed. Did you think fight with all their might? Don't they know the big attack? Wash your face, white boy, or you'll be Hey, you feel the pressure building, push you up against the wall The heart to blow the chambers, not the hammer, shoot and watch the But um, they they weren't really an influence, but um, you know, Gangster Fun absolutely were, and they were they were huge. And uh, there were a bunch of other like little bands. There was Etch a Sketch from Ann Arbor. There was you know, the, of course, the you know the Exceptions who were uh, coming up um, from Detroit. There was Tom Collins and the Cocktail Shakers from Kalamazoo. Um, there was Pickle Brown Betty from East Lansing. these bands really just never made it outside of their little towns or whatever. I mean, the one exception obviously is gangster fun. Um, but, um, yeah, so there was like this really just budding ska scene, you know, kind of throughout. Um, and I want to say that's like, that's probably like 89 and 90 when these bands were happening there, it was like house parties and whatever, you know, but, um, it was, it was exciting, you know? Yeah. I, I know when I interviewed you for the book, um, for the chapter about gangster fun, you did tell me some great stories about traveling to Detroit yeah. to see gangster fun. Can you um, share that again, just so people who might not have read the book can hear sort of about what it was like? Because you sort of, you painted a, a very interesting picture of what it was like to go, I guess, from Grand Rapids to Detroit. Yeah. And I, I'm assuming when G- gangster fun played uh, St. Andrews, right? Yeah. That was that not in the greatest neighborhood. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'd well, never been there. You know, that wasn't for Detroit. It wasn't that bad of a neighborhood, but it was Detroit in the 1980s, which was a rough place. I mean, it's still, it's still kind of rough in most sections. Um, downtown is nice now, and Midtown is nice, but um, yeah. I mean, Detroit was a, a really in a rough, rough spot back then. Anywhere was, um. So, but, and, and coming from Grand Rapids, you know, and, and being whatever, 18, um, you know, it was intimidating, you know, a bit. I mean, although Grand Rapids at the time was a little scary too. And like most of the punk rock places were in kind of rough neighborhoods and scary places as well. But, um, you know, going to, to see Gangster Fun in Detroit was just phenomenal because we come from, we came from a place like Grand Rapids where there was literally no ska scene to like, um, in, in Detroit, Gangster Fun was like selling out St. Andrews Hall, which is 1,100 capacity. I mean, they would they were drawing a thousand people. Um, it was just astounding, you know. And and there were there were lots of um, other, you know, the toasters would come. I mean, not well, the toasters, but um, the the Boss Tones would come on their early tours as well. 
and and bad manners. And they'd usually play like some of the other clubs and most of the other clubs were like even kind of in, in, in rougher neighborhoods. Um, I know there's like Todd's, there was, um, I'm trying to think where else, but um, there were a bunch of other places. Um, you know, Hamtramck was a, a little town inside of Detroit that um, had some Polish halls that like, you know, Gangster Fun would play out and, and uh, Bad Manners and that sort of thing. And it just had Detroit, like pretty much from the, the, the get-go from like, you know, at least the mid eighties really had a fantastic ska scene. And you had like, you, it was pretty like, um, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was culturally, it was very kind of tough and rootsy. Like there was a big skinhead presence. There was a lot of like scooter clubs that took things very seriously. Um, but yeah, gangster fun shows, it was just a mashup of all sorts of crazy people. So you had like, you know, the super, like, um, you know, like the, like the skinheads and scooter people and punks and just all sorts of random people. And, uh, yeah, it, it was nuts. Um, I mean, Colin tells a story. I mean, you ever talk to him? He, he, he went to see the boss tones and this is like their, one of their very first tours in probably like 1990 or something like that. And, um, he uh, was leaving the show and someone pulled a gun on him while he was in his car. Like he almost got carjacked or whatever. And he just took off real quick and, you know, they didn't, they didn't pull the trigger, fortunately. But there was just stuff like that that happened back then. Um, it was just nuts, you know. And I, I, the world has changed so much, I mean, in a lot of ways for the better since then. But, um, man, it was like you had to, to want it sometimes. I mean, it was a scary thing to go to Detroit and go to these new places, not, not knowing the lay of the land, but, um, you walk in the door and it was just like so much energy and, and, and just such incredible shows. Yeah. From the number of different people I interviewed for the chapter on gangster fun, that was pretty much what everyone said. I mean, one story someone told me that just sticks in my mind. It might've been Josh uh-huh. from gangster fun would, was that, the crowds would get so amped up that sometimes they would rip urinals off the walls in the bathroom at St. Andrews. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. I mean, that, that was something that happened a lot. I mean, cause it was like, there was, you know, the eighties punk scene was huge. And, um, you know, in Detroit, Detroit and, and Michigan in general, I think it's just a lot more kind of like, edgy, violent place than most places. Even to this day, I think Scott shows there are more crazy. I mean, with people like stage diving and crowd surfing and all that stuff. Um, there's still that kind of aggro energy in, in Detroit. I mean, like so many places, like I know in Grand Rapids, like with the punk shows, like so many of the clubs and halls wouldn't let those things happen because that's what people do. They just trash the place. They'd rip urinals off the, the walls and that sort of thing. So it was almost like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all that happened at gangster fun shows. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. And the other story that sticks in my mind is that John Bunkley told me that uh, he would stage dive at one of these shows where there were 1100 people in the audience and they would, he would be carried from the front all the way to the back of the club and they would put him down and he'd be like, like on the street and he would have to then <laughs> run back in and then they would crowd surf him back up to the stage and the band would sort of be vamping, <laughs> waiting for him to land back on stage. And then they would go right back into wherever he had left. So, totally, yeah. I mean, I never got, I mean, I'm so sorry that I never got to see any of this, but just the, the pictures that have been painted 
for me of them live at that time just sound, you know, astounding. Yeah, yeah, they were they were pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the mustard plug sound, uh-huh. Dave. Um, h- how would you describe it? Because when I listen to you guys, I sometimes hear, you know, as much ska as I hear like punk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it sounds to me in some ways like you're influenced sort of by the descendants. Is that is that sort of fair to say? Yeah, that, I mean, that's definitely one of them. We're definitely influenced by melodic punk. Um, you know, I mean, we started off, it was like we, the goal is definitely like like to, to be a, a ska band. But um, it's kind of like a punk rock interpretation of, of, of ska and because that's kind of where we had come from. And um you know, I mean, there was like the the Operation Ivy record was really influential as well as, you know, we were listening to a lot of, you know, straightforward ska as well, like the Toasters, the Busters and New York Citizens. Um, so we really wanted to kind of combine those in a unique way. Um, the, the punk that was influential um, to us, though, was was like pop punk. And, and when I say pop punk, obviously, you got to put it in context of like the late 80s. So like the descendants were like a big influence. Naked Ray Gun was a big influence. So, I mean, like stuff like, like Black Flag, I love Black Flag, but they weren't like a huge influence on our sound. You know what I mean? Um, we were just more into like the melody, the melodic stuff. And, and I, I think the core, um, I mean, the, the, the core element of, of Mustard Plug is not only, you know, obviously ska, but also like, you know, has some sort of like punk edge. But the other thing is, is um, basically melodic, you know, kind of pop songs. I mean, they have to... We, we do, I mean, Kyle and I, um, we're really fortunate in that we have, we love a lot of the same music. And I think the things that, like, we both have a sincere, sincere love for ska and, like, you know, like two-tone ska and all, all types of ska, but, um, and also for melodic punk. And there, we have a lot of the same fan, bands that we've always been kind of in love with. And and so that's that's a big part of it. I think, you know, we we both, like, dance music i mean we kind of back in the 80s when you're going to these punk shows we were also going to all these like you know alternative like dance nights you know that was a big thing we you know colin was like in the in through the 90s up until fairly recently colin was a like an alternative music dj at clubs you know and i've always like gone to that so like dance music you know you know and when i say dance music, i mean like alternative stuff um has always been a big influence. So that was important. But like, you know, melodic punk and, you know, and, and Scott, it's like that trying to find those common variables, you know, and that's, that's kind of where we, you know, I guess that's a blueprint for the music. Sure. And, and I know on, 
on your album, Evil Doers Beware, you worked with sort of like some punk legends, right? I mean, they were yeah. it was produced by Bill Stevenson from Black Flag and Stephen Edgerton um, from All in the Descendants. So I- I'm going to assume that 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 working with them certainly must have had some influence on on the sound of that record. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 it's funny because like I, when we first started the, the band, it was like definitely more like punk stuff and, you know, like Operation Ivy was a bigger influence, that sort of thing. The second record, Big Day Multitude, we kind of had a, a, a change up in the lineup and it went a little more kind of like pop ska, less punk. Because um, I just from like people that, you know, joined the band, left the band. But then, you know, I think our, our sound really more solidified with like Evildoers Beware. And that was where we really kind of figured out like where that, those two influences meet and the, the combination we want. Um, and, you know, it was at that time we had a bunch of songs and it was like a, a time like 95 where, um, you know, you could feel like just Scott about ready to explode. It felt like, and, um, you know, like I said, we were big Descendants fans and we knew that Bill and, and Stefan had a new studio and they had recorded a few bands, nothing that noteworthy. I mean, there was like, I'm trying to think like big drill car and, you know, obviously like the, the all stuff, but we really loved the all stuff and all came and played this little tiny, like it was like basically the CBGBs of uh, Grand Rapids, little tiny uh, punk club called the reptile house. And, you know, there's a hundred people there or whatever. And so it was very accessible. And, and so Colin actually went up to Bill and was like, hey, um, we're looking for someone to like record a record. Are you interested? And Bill gave Colin the number and, you know, I ended up calling him and they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and, and Bill was like, actually, it turns out they were really excited about it because, you know, first it was like, this was the very beginning of, of their studio, The Blasting Room. Um, so there's that, but also every band that wanted them to record them sounded like them. You know what I mean? Like, so all the bands that got the opportunity to record already kind of sounded like, you know, descendants or whatever. And so the idea of doing a ska band with horns, um, like Bill was super stoked because it's like, this is something completely different. It's like a whole new challenge. He had never recorded um, horns before. He only had like, kind of like, you know, a very little knowledge of ska, you know, he started listening to like, you know, he asked us like what he should listen to. And we're like, go listen to the specials record. That's a, a great place and to start. And, uh, you know, he's got him some other stuff, but like they were just kind of thrilled about the challenge of it all. And, um, working with them was, was just an amazing experience. They are, they're exceptional musicians. Like they're in a whole other league than where we're at and like like my vocals it's just crazy because like Stefan has like perfect pitch he's just like but and and this was the day this was the the olden days we were like recording on two inch tape there was no auto tune you just have to like try to nail those notes as best as you can if it takes you 20 takes get as close as you can and I had never had any sort of vocal training or, or whatever and um thank god those guys were really patient and um you know, I think they got really good performances out of us considering. And uh, it was just um, a pretty, I mean, that, that was like one of the, like the really seminal life-changing moments of the band, I felt, being able to record with them, especially that first time. Sure. And and it it sounds like what happened there is that you also discovered your 
your sound, right? I mean, is that the album where you think everything yeah. sort of came together for you? Yeah, yeah ex- you know, and we had all the songs pretty much like, you know, written and that sort of thing before we went in the studio or anything. I, so I don't think it really changed the sound. And um, like we had, we always would write songs and then play them live, you know, to get them totally nailed before we even hit the studio. So it's not like we were like, they really changed the sound of the band, but like they definitely, I mean, influence the way our records sound, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And we did learn a lot from them in terms of like, you know, just having someone suggest some, some just relatively minor things, but you know, just in terms of songwriting and um, you know, arranging and, and things like that. Cause you know, the band, again, when we started, we just were learning along the way. We didn't have any experience or whatever. So, I mean, I, like I said, I had never had like a vocal cord coach. I had never um, been in choir, nothing. So, you know, it was a, a tremendous education just being in the studio with them. I can only imagine. I mean, that's, that, that's how we all learned. I think, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, you, the first time you go in the studio, you, you know, at least I, my, I remember being terrified because I was like, wait a minute. What? Yeah. I can't mess up here. Like it has to be yeah, yeah. perfect. And, and it's crazy. Cause like, you know, like Bill Stevenson is considered, you know, he, over and over, he wins these polls as being the best drummer in punk rock of all time. Right. And I a hundred percent believe that too. And, and Stefan's just a ridiculous guitar player. And like I said, he has vocally has perfect pitch and they're just phenomenal. It's a whole different, but, and, but they're very approachable guys. Like they're like way more approachable than like half the sound men we've worked with. You know what I mean? They're way more approachable than a lot of other studios I've been in. Um, and considering the amount of talent they have, they're just really down to earth guys. Um, yeah. I yeah. mean, that's, that's a blessing then, you know, when, Absolutely. You, when you come into yeah. a situation like that, I mean, that's just, you know, uh, either divine providence or luck or whatever, whatever, totally. you know, but, but those are the kind of things that will, will be a career changing experience. Yeah, um, definitely. You and Colin have written most of the songs for Mustard Plug, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who's the Lennon and who's the McCartney in your <laughs> songwriting partnership? You know, I've tried to think about that. And it's funny because I, I was a huge Beatles fan, like growing up. I still have like probably the whole catalog on vinyl, you know, and that sort of thing. Colin, Colin less so, you know, I think he's, he grew up listening to Kiss and stuff. But, um, you know, it, it's it's funny because you think about it and um, – you know, are we more, you know, Mick and Keith or Paul and John or um, Roger Daltrey and, um, you know, what are Pete Townsend? You, you try to like, you know, especially, you know, classic rock was inescapable in, in my childhood. So, um, you know, it, it, I can't help but try to like think about like what pigeonhole we are. And, and but I, I, you know, after all these years of thinking about it, you just... I don't, I don't think you can really do it. You know, we're kind of our own thing. So. Um, sure. I, I'm just, as, as someone who, who, you know, has written songs with other people, I'm just yeah. curious what your creative process is like with Colin. Do you, do you guys sit down together? And I know the answer is we do this all, everything, you know, under the sun, but I'm, I'm sort of curious in the beginning or, or, or earlier in your career, did you bring in lyrics? Did he bring music? Did you guys sit down? How, how did that go? Yeah. I mean, it, it, like I said, it is, it's very different, but more often than not, I mean, like he would, um, especially during the beginning, he would, you know, we would all just get together in a room and either he, 
at the beginning, he would bring a guitar riff, something he was working on, or sometimes the bass player would come in with something, and we'd sort of build it from there. Um, as time progressed, uh, it was more often that like he would come in with a more uh, finished song structure. Sometimes he'd come in, you know, with lyrics too for some of the songs or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't play an instrument, so it's really hard for me to like write a song. Um, there's been times though, when I, I have an idea and I'll say, I'll kind of bring it in and kind of maybe, you know, present it to him, just be like, Hey, I have this crazy idea and this very rough vocal melody. Can you come up with something? And, and so that, but that's maybe like, I don't know. 15%, 20% of the songs, I'd say the vast majority of them are like, especially recently, the vast majority are like him having like a loose song structure, at least the the guitar melody and sometimes even the vocal melody too. Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. So that's how you you did your, you sort of written your original songs. I, I'd like to talk to you about your cover of The Freshman. Uh-huh. Um, looking back now, do you think it was a good de- a good decision not to push the song? I mean, because I, you know, yeah. I'm a huge fan of versioning songs, as you know. I mean, I'm, you know, right. Boy George. That's that's yeah, what we yeah. do. Um, but I have always thought this was such an interesting choice for you guys. Yeah, and, and it's a really serious song that you do incredible justice to. I mean, there's a real emotional depth to that song that I think is even better than um, the version that the Verve Pipe oh, recorded. Thanks. Uh, I, I mean, I, I I like a lot of your catalog, but for me, that's like a song I come back to a lot. I think um, mainly because I had a similar experience in college. I got a girl pregnant and um, she had to have an abortion. And so there's, you know, for me personally, right. there's something that's that's very real yeah. uh, about that song. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could sort of just talk a little bit about that because I, I sure. know the backstory to it. I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about, about that backstory. And then like what went down where you ultimately decided not to really push that song. Cause, cause I'm assuming if you had gone the other way, it might've blown up for you. Right. Yeah. It's hard to say, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, there's certain career choices we've made and I know we've made mistakes along the way. I think we've made more good choices than bad. And I don't know um, if we made the right decision or not, but the, the story was that, um, you know, the Verve pipe are from Grand Rapids and Grand Rapids Really, I mean, it's a small, I mean, it's a, 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 a sort of a, a forgotten Midwest city. It, it's like this, not famous for anything. You know, you know what I mean? Um, and it, it's, I'm sure it has a little bit of an inferiority complex as well. Um, so um, the Verve Pipe came out of West Michigan and had this monster hit. Young, I knew everything. She, a punk who rarely ever took advice. Now I'm guilt stricken, sobbing with my head on the floor. Stopping baby's breath and a shoe full of rice. No, and it's all over the radio, and they're like these sacred gods of Grand Rapids. Um, and uh. 
this the radio station, like the alternative radio station that loved them, um, was uh, putting together a, a compilation CD. And they asked us to be on it. And we're like, well, you know, we've always had a little tiny chip on our shoulder in general, at least I'm sure I have just in life. (laughs) But, um, you know, we're just like, you know, they've never really played us on the radio. Now they want us to be on their compilation. Um, Well, let's take their their golden hit and uh, we'll do it our way and see what they think. And we weren't sure if they were going to be super offended by it. Or, or what, if, or bummed out, um, we'll record it. And, you know, the thing about that song is that it's kind of undeniably a good song, you know? And, and it's like, um, you know, I think it's a really good songwriting. I think it's like sincere lyrics. And so, you know, we, we, we put some like thought into it and tried to make it good, you know? I, I, I we're happy with it. Um, and it turned out really well. The radio station, turns out, they loved it, and they, they started playing it. And um, it, it became evident that um, this was, you know, better than just something to throw out there. It was had, like, uh, potential for some, some serious airplay. Um, and we were working in, in, uh, with, with Hopeless Records. And at that time, Hopeless Records was, um, they were still trying to figure out how to do things. Um, they had a clue, but not, they didn't have much experience. They'd never really broken a band. They, you know, they're still, they're just, they were figuring it out. Um, and we came with the idea, I think together to put together a radio single of this. Right. And, um, we decided to put two songs on the the freshman and you, and you was the song we wrote and we thought it was going to be the single off the record. And we, our dream was to have radio play that song. And um, it wasn't, it was a possibility. This was a time when, you know, radio was playing Scott. So we're like, yeah, maybe they'll, so what we'll do is we'll send this two song thing out and hopefully they'll start playing the freshman and then they'll switch over to and start playing you. Right. Um, and, and some radio stations picked up on it. You know, I, I know, I think, I think K-Rock played it a little bit. I know there was a station, in, a, a commercial alternative station in, in Phoenix that played it in like heavy rotation. Um, so there are these, 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 uh, uh, radio stations, commercial radio stations that were starting to play with it. It's starting to get some traction and we had to make the decision. Okay. So what do we do now? Do we re-release the record with it on? Do we do a video or whatever? Um, but it became also really clear that none of these stations that were playing it had any interest in playing you, which yeah. is what our goal was in, in the first place. So we had to make decision, you know, do we like re-release the record? Do do with the record with the the single on? Do we do a video that sort of thing? 
And we made the choice, right or wrong, that um, we're just going to let it die. Um, we don't, we don't, we, the fear was, um, you know, mainstream radio had never heard us before. We don't want to be known as that band that plays that other band's song and be that one hit wonder band. And um, it, it seemed like there were a lot of bands at that point um, that were kind of getting, that, that's what was happening too. You know, I don't want to name names, but I think there were certain bands that did covers, Scott covers, and they, they, it became like, oh, they're that novelty band that has that one thing, but, you know, who cares about their original stuff? And, you know, and maybe it's, I, I think probably a lot of it has to do with coming from, uh, a punk rock background, reading too many issues of maximum rock and roll, <laughs> you know, it, it's like, um, you know, we're just like, nope, we don't want to do it. We don't want to be that bad. We'd rather have, you know, our fans know us for the beer song or for you or whatever, than have all these like people that are just going to like ditch us in six months. know us as that one hit wonder band. So, um, you know, honestly, I don't know if that was a good decision or not. We probably would have, um, expose ourselves to um, a lot more people. I, I I don't know how it would have turned out, but you know, it, we made the decision we made, and 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 there it is. You know, I think it was a very brave decision, particularly for you know, you guys were probably in your late twenties at that point. Yeah. Had I assume sort of committed to 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 doing this in, in a fairly serious way. We were doing it full time. That was it. We were just we didn't really have jobs. We just toured. That was it. Was crazy and. Uh, yeah, it was, I don't know, it was brave or foolhardy or whatever. I'm, our record label was sad. <laughs> I bet. Because um, they really saw it as an opportunity. And they, I mean, Re- Hopeless really, um, even at that time, they were all about do it, trying to get into the mainstream. Um, but to their credit, they supported us and they, you know, didn't push too hard. They're like, okay, we understand that's what you want to do. and We get it. So what, was it a unanimous decision among all the band members at that point? I mean, you know, was, I think it, was it, it was. a vote or I don't remember a vote. I just remember just, I mean, we, we always talked about stuff. I don't remember anyone putting their foot down and be like, we're idiots. We should blah, 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 do this or do that. You know? Um, I don't, there wasn't any like real, like no one was, I think we were all on the same boat on the same page. Impressive. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, hard to say right or wrong. I'm just, I'm yeah. just impressed that, that you guys didn't go for like the shiny gold ring, you yeah. know, I mean, there, there's, there is something punk rock and DIY about that. That's very right. impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, you guys made a, a documentary, um, a couple of years ago uh, about your van, you know, touring in your van. Yeah. Um, what has touring in a van for so many years taught you about life? Um, you know, I think the main thing is that like, it's really fostered a sense of, independence about and problem solving and just kind of going out there and doing it on your, on your own and figuring things out. I mean, it's a tremendous sense of freedom just going out in a van and you're driving it. We take turns driving and you go to, you pick where, if you're going to take a right turn or a left turn, if you're going to stay at the motel six or the super eight, if you're going to eat at Taco Bell or Burger King, or if you're going to go to uh, take the day off and go to Disneyland or, or whatever. I mean, it's, it, you know, it kind of feels like you're a pirate on the high seas. You know, it's a whole different thing than if you're on a tour in a tour bus where like you're going from point A to point B. You always know where the where that's going to be. You're just kind of like a passive passenger on this thing, right? You're strapped in and 
the tour bus is going where it's going, you know, whereas like doing it DIY style in a van, I mean, you just have to deal with it. The, the van breaks down, you deal with it. You know, the, the trailer breaks down, you deal with it. You want to go do whatever you want. You want to go thrift store shopping or go to this like stupid restaurant that you heard of or, or, or crash with friends. Um, you do it. And so it, it is the sense of freedom, but also responsibility. And, uh, it's uh it it has had a huge influence on my life i think yeah i i can only imagine i mean like um when your average let's say late 20 or early 30 year old person was getting up and going to work from 9 to 5 5 days a week like you didn't you didn't do that right no. i mean you guys were it, it didn't matter if it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, I guess, because I'm assuming you were playing a lot on, on weekends, but as yeah. you're traveling, like, did, did did life sort of blur a little bit? I mean, I, I, I would imagine, like, you know, for me, work being a working stiff for a while, like, that's how my life was organized, by work mm-hmm. and the weekend. How how did that work for you guys when you were sort of out on the road and you didn't really have any any necessary rules, societal rules that you had to follow, Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and when we came home, I mean, if we had jobs, it was maybe like working at a record store or working at a coffee shop or just, you know, stuff we could like leave at any second and it was pretty low key. And, you know, those type of jobs, it didn't matter if it was Friday or Tuesday as well. And, and there are times people didn't have jobs or whatever, you know, just sometimes they would for fun. Um, but mainly it was just out on the road. And, um, so yeah, like, uh, it's definitely not the routine that most people have the Monday through Friday thing. Um, and, and, and it did get to the point. So I, I mean, I, I grew up in Grand Rapids. The, most of the band like grew up in or around Grand Rapids. Um, so we still have, I still have, always have tons of friends here, always tons of families, family here, but, um, you know, you go out on the road and there were times we went out. I mean, the worst one <laughs> was like, I think six and a half, seven weeks. That was just crazy where we like did I think part of we got on like three weeks of a face-to-face tour. Then we did like two weeks on our own. Then like two more weeks of another tour that we, you know, and just like, you know, I remember circling because we did two different tours playing Jacksonville twice, like six weeks apart on the same tour, stuff like that. Um, where it's just like, it gets weird um, because that becomes your whole life and your whole life revolves around that weird routine of just, getting up, get in the van, play the show, go to the hotel, repeat over and over and over and over. Um, and then you'd come home and you'd kind of see like your other friends and like they had, life had gone on with them over the last seven weeks and your family life had gone on. And in certain ways, your life had stayed still in a way. And in a certain ways, your life had done, you'd done so much more than them. You know what I mean? It was, it, it's just kind of like two completely different worlds. I always felt like a little bit like, um, I don't know how, how to ex- explain it, but almost like jet laggers. Like when, when I came back from like those long tours, like it took me days, a few days to just like adjust to reality. Cause it's so different. You know, yeah. You're like sort that. of in a bubble. Right. Yeah, I mean, what, it's a total bubble. Remind me, what's the name of your, of your um, documentary? Cause, cause there's a reason for that. Right. Can you explain? Yeah. yeah never the, get out of the van is what it's And called. where does that come from? So a couple things like, just like, you know, there's like the never get out of the van, always stay DIY, stay in your van. There's that part. But also, um, there's, you know, we're big fans of a movie apocalypse now. And there's a scene 
where the chef is like, they're all on the, the boat, right? And the chef decides, I'm going to go pick some mangoes, man. I'm going to go out in the jungle, pick some mangoes. And he, he goes out in the jungle and he gets attacked by a tiger and he comes running back to the, the boat. And he's like, there was a freaking tiger, man, man. Like never get out of the boat. Never get out of the boat, man. So like that quote <laughs> was like, it was also kind of inside joke in the van because, um, you know, people, uh, whenever they leave the van on tour, like go hang out with friends or whatever, bad, bad stuff would happen. So it was kind of a running joke. Never get out of the van, man. Never get out of the van. <laughs> Perfect. Because I, I guess on a, on a certain level, if you're on like a six week tour, that van is essentially like your home. I, yeah, I always equate when I'm on the road with a band and I've never done it to the extent that you have, but when I have, you know, done it for like a week or so, it always reminds me of being like in the army, yeah. like that you are in yeah. a unit totally. and that unit yep. is traveling to a mission that it has, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like, now. you know, it, it, it can get a little weird. You're right. It get it gets weird. Yeah. It, I, you know, I've said that, you know, I remember talking to one of our old members, like sit in the van and be like, you know, when our dad's generation, when they were our age, they were in the army, you know, because there's the draft. Everyone, my dad's age, had to be in the army. It was a rite of passage. And it's like almost like this is our bizarro yeah, rite of passage. Totally. Well. My, my dad was in Korea. And yeah. so I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and as Gen Xers, I guess, you know, a certain right. type of Gen Xer, you, you were in a band and, and, and you were in a van. Right. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. Um, What's your take on the state of ska punk after 30 years of being in Mustard Plug? <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, it's really hard to know what's going on because of the whole COVID thing and they're just shows are starting to happen. But um, it's, it's really fascinating right now where, um, you know, before, before COVID, ska punk um, and ska in general too, I think, um, was really having a renaissance you know, and I think it still is. And I think it's just only going to grow. Um, but the last tour we did, which was in January, last U.S. tour, I should say, was Us and the Toasters, right? And it's like two bands that have played the West Coast a bazillion times. And we've played a bazillion shows together. But that tour just all of a sudden had so much energy. Like people were excited in a way that I hadn't seen since the 1990s. And shows were selling out, and there was just that energy. And it was like a combination of some new fans and some old fans that were just like, "Yes, I'm back," you know. And uh, it was it, it was really phenomenal. And I think, you know, it's really hard to judge from my perspective, just because bands haven't been touring and things have just been weird because of the pandemic. But um, it really seems like a fantastic time for ska and ska punk. Um, I think part of it is just, you know, people 
need it. People need something uplifting and fun. And people, after being inundated with electronic music, want to see live music again, uh, live instruments, you know? And um, yeah, and, and I think the other thing is too, like the the technology has changed where I think Spotify has, and, and that sort of thing is streaming. It's like, A, it's given a revenue source to labels and bands that didn't exist for like, you know, since the days of CDs. And, and it's given new fans are in an instantaneous way to like find so much great ska music, you know? So I think there's just a whole lot of, a lot of things going on and, and, you know, and, and it's interesting, you know, um, so many good books coming out on ska and, you know, there's a ska documentary. It's just this really bizarre old thing where it's like, you know, I don't, it's like there's, you know, the collective unconscious or whatever, where people have all of a sudden decided Yes, ska, ska again, you know? And it's weird because we went through some really rough times. Like, we're like one of the few bands that stayed touring for 30 years. We never put out like that punk with horns album. We always had ska. We were always, you know, a ska band, always playing ska records and playing ska shows. And there were some tough, tough times to be a ska band. And, um, you know, I'm I'm surprised, happily, and uh, it's, uh, but it's, yeah, it's really... I, I, I'm kind of want to pinch myself, but you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm super optimistic in a way. I haven't been in, you know, many years. I am too. And, um, there's, it's, you can sort of feel it, right. There's something, mm-hmm. there's like an energy in, yeah. in the air. And, and I know you guys are, um, going to be going on, uh, on a West coast tour with some bands, I think you've probably influenced. So that's sort of interesting to me. And, you know, I, I recently interviewed, uh, Mike Sosinski, who uh-huh. runs Bad Time Records, you know, and, and I listened to some of the bands on on his label. It's clear that they've listened to Mustard Plug. You know what yeah. I mean? So that that that's kind of interesting to me that that you guys have have stuck it out and come full circle and now you're gonna be on tour with some of those those bands who who some of those members probably grew up listening to you. And that's very cool. Um all right. So this is a long question, so bear with me. Okay. All right. In an interview with Punk News in two thousand and eight. When you were asked, what does the future hold for Mustard Plug? Do you see yourself doing this 17 years down the road? You <laughs> said, I quote, it's really hard to say. We don't have any plans to quit. In fact, we just bought a new van that's going to take us a few years to pay off. It's pretty hard to imagine me doing this when I'm 57. I just turned 40. But right now, I'd say until people stop coming to our shows or we're not physically able to do it, we'll keep on keeping on. So, Dave, you just played show number 1,900. I checked your your oh my um, gosh, yeah. website. Yeah, I that's thought right. it was a yeah. perfect number. You oh just did that this month, and you're now, and you personally, and I'm, I'm you know, I know you're, you're, you're not a woman, so you're not going to be embarrassed if I say this. You are now <laughs> four years away from turning 57. Yeah. Um, the Ramones played 2,263 shows. So, to me, they are the Cal Ripkins of punk. Can you hang on and break that show record? <laughs> You know, I don't, I have no idea. <laughs> well, I, I have to do the math. Cause like we don't do a ton of shows every year. I mean, we're not like doing 200 shows a year. We're probably doing like, you know, 40, 50 or whatever. So, um, it's going to take us a few more years to get that to 226. I guess, well, you know, it's about three, it's, what, it's seven more years, something like that. <laughs> is that, what, is that if my math is right. Um, so, so that, that would, that would put you at 60. Yeah, I mean, Bucket's doing it, right? He's got to yes. be up there. I have, look, that's one of the beautiful things about, about ska music in my yeah. mind. You know, I used to go see the Scottalites. We were watching guys who were like in right. their 60s and 70s and we were like, you know, 
just in, you know, so in love with them. So Mm -hmm. I I don't see age is just a number, but I just thought it was kind of, to me, you know, you guys, along with the toasters and BIM Scala BIM are bands in my mind that are road warriors. And when I just saw 1900 and then I look, I said, Oh shit. And I looked up the Ramones and, and, you know, 2,260. I said, they're not that far away. Like they, yeah. you might be able to pull it off. I mean, that's something to aim for. It is. That's a good goal. <laughs> I like it. All right, Dave, I got one last question for you. Sure. Um, are there any similarities between playing in a band and being a real estate agent? I can't think of like too many similarities, like right off the bat, but I will well, say- I can. I, I can think of right off the bat. Yeah. First of all, you're a very outgoing front man, right? Yeah. You're, you are uh, charming and um, you dress well uh, on stage. <laughs> um, so I, I got to figure that, that there's some of that when you are um, listing a home or um, attempting to convince somebody to buy a home. Is, yeah. is that any of that, any of what you've learned on stage factor into your, you know, your life or your job outside well, of Mustard Plug? You know, I, I, I do, I mean, I, I do approach both things from um a standpoint of authenticity you know i i, th- I think um there has to be when, when doing music I, I think you have to come from like some sort of sincere place whether it's um you know sincere love of the music or, or something and and my stage persona is like very different than like i think my offstage persona sometimes um you know i'm not i'm not i'm not a I don't think I'm a very boisterous person off, off the stage or whatever. Um, but I mean, that's definitely part of me, you know, it's part of, um, who I am. Um, but I think it's important in real estate. I, you know, I, there's some cheesy realtors that there's, I'm sure there's a lot of them that it's just like, it's all like kind of smoke and mirrors and, and selling them, them you know, selling something, you know, and, and I don't know. I, I think it, it's, from both things, I think it's important to philosophically to come from, you know, a sincere, authentic place, you know? So I'll say that, um, that makes sense. Um, I, I will say I've learned a lot of stuff I've learned from being in a band and I've learned a lot is applicable to, um, you know, being a realtor. And, and the number one thing is just like problem solving, you know, just dealing with whatever life throws at you and whoever they throw at you, you know, I've, I've, I've been able through the band, you know, just touring the world and dealing with all sorts of people had to deal with, um, you know, all, just deal with all sorts of situations, all sorts of people. And, um, I, I, I often think, you know, no matter who I'm dealing with real estate, it's they're they're not as crazy or as hard or whatever as stuff I've dealt with in the music biz, you know? Sure. Uh, nothing can be worse than a, than a really shitty, terrible sound man, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Or a promoter or this or that, you know? Um, so yeah, it's really been able to put a lot in perspective, you know? Yeah. That was an excellent answer. See, I, I thought I had stumped you, but there you go. <laughs> I, I, that was a great answer. Um, thank you, Dave. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Hey, I enjoyed it too. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Skaboom Interviews. My book is available from DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com, as well as now on Amazon. Thanks for listening and take care.